verses 1 through 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. I think it's on page 952 um, in the Bible underneath the seat in front of you if you do not have a Bible. If you're able, uh, please stand for the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who, who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Please pray with me. Our Father, we uh, are struck again this morning in, in, in this new year. Great is thy faithfulness. You are such a faithful God. We're grateful for this church. We're grateful for the word. We're grateful for Jesus. We're grateful to start another sermon series this morning. Just pray your blessing upon us that your Holy Spirit would uh, come upon us with power now as we go into your word, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please be seated. 25 years ago, on September 6th, 1995, a significant moment in Major League Baseball history took place. The game between the California Angels and Baltimore Orioles was stopped momentarily after the top of the fifth inning and was held up for 22 minutes for a standing ovation from the crowd. It wasn't a grand slam or some kind of remarkable offensive play that drew their applause, not a, an unassisted triple play or some kind of defensive marvel that stopped the game. In fact, it wasn't anything you would even notice unless you were aware of history. You see, as that game went to the bottom of the fifth inning, became official in the record books, and Cal Ripken Jr. had officially broken the record for consecutive games played, 2,131, a record set by Lou Gehrig in 1939. Ripken went on to play a couple hundred more games before he voluntarily took himself out of the lineup. Through numerous injuries, through illnesses, through every kind of hardship, so easy it would have been at times to sit out, he faithfully took the field day after day after day. 2,362 games in a row. Faithfulness is not something that normally gets a lot of press or fanfare in sports. Instead, what gets attention is spectacular ability or moments of greatness on display. And this can be true in the church as well. People are often impressed by giftedness, by abilities, by charisma, numbers of people, numbers of followers. 
But that's not how God views things. God values faithfulness. He values long-term, consistent obedience when it's hard. He values finishing strong. He values commitment to what his word says, faithfulness to Jesus and his word at all costs, over against your own preferences, over against the easy way, over against the lies of the culture which bombard us, the lies of the myths of of self-fulfillment, being true to yourself, following your desires, serving yourself instead of others. Each year, the pastors of Orchard pray about and discuss for some time what our area of emphasis will be for the coming year. And this year, for 2020, it is this word faithfulness that captures our focus. And accordingly, we're starting a new series this morning in 1 Corinthians, and we're excited about how the Holy Spirit in the coming weeks and months, will instruct us through this letter and transform us individually and as a church. And we've named this 1 Corinthians series Faithful in the Fire because faithfulness is not easy. There are a lot of pressures that make faithfulness difficult. Pressures from outside in the culture. Pressures from inside our fallen human nature. Faithfulness to the Lord was not easy in ancient Corinth, and it's not easy today. But boy, is it important. Consider some of the topics that we will see Paul address with the Corinthians and ultimately us in this letter. Faithfulness to the centrality of the cross and Christ crucified. Faithfulness to unity, avoiding divisions in the church. Faithfulness in baptism, basing our ministry to others on the right things. Dealing with sexual immorality. Faithfulness in exercising church discipline. How should we think about lawsuits? Faithfulness in marriage. Faithfulness in singleness. How should we think about divorce? Living faithfully in the station of life that you're in. Being faithful using your spiritual gifts, every member ministry, with humility and using the knowledge you've been given. Faithfulness in taking the Lord's Supper appropriately. What about our relationship with the poor? Faithful to in our giving, in our financial support of missions and church ministry. Faithful to the God-ordained differences between men and women in the church. Faithfulness in evangelism, how to bend our preferences to reach the lost. How are we faithful in our unity in issues of conscience? Faithful in how we think about the second coming of Christ, the last judgment, the resurrection. As you can see, these topics are highly relevant to us today. And as we go through this letter and hit these various topics, we will sometimes slow down and go into extra detail about how these things play out at Orchard. This doesn't mean we do everything perfectly here, far from that, or that there are not other ways to do things and continue to be faithful to the scripture. But we want you to understand why we do things the way we do as we seek to be faithful to what the Lord says. The Lord's Supper or baptism, for instance. There are distinctives that are helpful to know 
A lot of these things require wisdom where scripture gives us flexibility in the details of how some of these things are applied. Now, before we dive into our text this morning, I want to give a little bit of background on this letter. At at this time in history, Corinth was the most populated and wealthiest city in what is now Eastern Europe, A, a culture very much like our own. It was the most commercially materialistic in the region, and the city most obsessed with sexuality. There was a large temple of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love. It was a cult basically dedicated to the glorification of sex. Each evening, a thousand of what were called sacred prostitutes would come to the streets near the temple and engage their business. There was also the temple of Apollo, the ideal of male beauty. This was the center of homosexuality practices. Now, we may think, oh, man, the depravity of Corinth. Well, I'm sure you know, don't you, that the spirit of Aphrodite and Apollos is alive and well in our culture, only less public and perhaps more dangerously in the privacy of homes on the Internet. Gordon Fee says that Corinth was the New York Los Angeles and Las Vegas of the ancient world all wrapped up into one. What a combination. The word Corinthianize meant to play the harlot. And a Corinthian girl was slang for the equivalent of our word whore. But obsession with sex was not the only thing ancient Corinth had in common with our culture. There was also a fixation on one's reputation and status in the eyes of others. Does that sound familiar? Self-promotion to gain influence, socially ambitious, status-hungry, basically our culture, only without Instagram or Facebook. Now, what about the church in Corinth? Paul established this church, as we read in Acts chapter 18, and there was at least, he was there at least a year and a half. Actually, he stayed longer in Corinth than any other place except Ephesus. And we know more about the Corinthian church than any other, not just because of 1 and 2 Corinthians, but Acts and Romans. There, we have at least 16 members of the church named explicitly. And it's estimated the church had roughly at least 50 people when Paul was there and had grown now. Now, it's difficult, and and as we go through the letter, you'll, you'll see this as we apply things, but it's difficult to know for certain what the logistics were of the church in Corinth. In Romans 16, we read of Gaius, who seemed to host the whole church. So he must have been wealthy with some kind of residence that where they could all meet. There were likely smaller house churches at least at one time, and now perhaps they were coming together, meeting in this single location, but we can't be totally sure. But this would explain the source of some of the conflict, perhaps, we see in future weeks, we'll see, perhaps loyalties to personalities who had led various house churches. It is often said that the the church in Corinth was worldly, we can understand why, And some believe they had relapsed into their their pagan habits or were influenced by some kind of false teaching. It's probably more accurate to just say they were simply not applying the wisdom of the cross in their attitudes appropriately. 
The theology of the cross, which we'll see in the first two chapters, is really the foundation of the unity, love, and service that we'll read about in the 12 chapters that follow. This letter, of course, was written by the Apostle Paul, and we know that he had written them at least one other letter before this because he references it. And just last thing, as, from a big picture perspective, as we go through this letter, we'll see Paul doing two things. First, he's concerned about reports that he's heard from others about this church. And second, he's responding to a letter that the Corinthians had sent him. And he says later, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and you can see what those matters are, because sometimes he says, now concerning this, or now concerning that, where he addresses their, the, the topics. And interestingly, Paul alternates between what he's heard about them and what they've written about to him. So that's kind of interesting as we go through. This is a messy church. But as we'll see, despite all their problems, Paul is hopeful because God is faithful. So we'll be covering the first nine verses of chapter 1 this morning. And as Craig Blomberg notes, you can tell a lot about Paul's emphasis in each of his letters just by looking at the introductions. And, and noticing how they differ from his introductions to the other letters that we have available to us. And you can see in the outline, we will consider this introduction as a call to faithfulness. To the Lord of our church, to the Lord of our gifts, and to the Lord of our future. So number one in your outline, be faithful to the Lord of our church. Let's read again. Please reference in your own Bible, starting in verse 1. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stop there. So we see some things very familiar, like in Paul's other introductions. However, in many of Paul's other letters, he calls himself a slave or bond servant of Christ. Here he stresses that he's an apostle, one sent by God with God's authority. Now, this is not to toot his own horn or puff himself up. We see elsewhere, don't we, that he's very, he can be very self-effacing, calling himself the worst of sinners and so forth. But not here. Not when he's recognizing or when he's, when he's, excuse me, when he's exercising his role as an apostle, a role that God called him to. So he's very bold and puts his authority right up front because in writing this letter, he's exercising that authority. And it's important that the Corinthians understand and that we understand that he's speaking for God. Paul's not writing to offer his personal opinions about how the Christian life or church should be done. No, he's establishing right off the bat that the Lord is speaking to them. He has authority vested by Jesus to instruct how church is done and how the Christian life works. Another clear emphasis in this introduction that relates to this is the, the phrase, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's used five times in the first nine verses. And God and Lord Jesus are almost used interchangeably. Paul takes for granted the deity of Jesus. 
So the authority of Jesus and the authority of God are one and the same. Also remember that in this culture, Caesar is Lord. A deified Caesar, really, a God-like Caesar. Paul makes it clear for these Roman members of the church, no matter what their status, Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ holds the highest place. Allegiance to Jesus is a requirement, not optional. It's the church of God at Corinth, Paul writes. This is God's church, not theirs to do what they want. And this is God's church in Corinth, one of the many local churches of God. We see here another emphasis, unity. Unity that we'll see primarily within the local church, but also unity across the the universal church. Their Lord and ours, he says. We all submit to the Lord Jesus. It's not a personality cult where you side with one church leader or pledge your allegiance to another. There are many churches across the land that disagree on smaller matters, but all true churches are part of the larger church universal, and they belong to God, not a particular teacher or leader. We're going to see more of this next week. I follow Peter, I follow Apollos, etc. But this is a, a big danger today. There's a lot of person, big personalities out there, isn't there? You hear a lot of people say, I go to so-and-so's church, referencing the lead pastor or preacher. That's dangerous. Okay, now there's nothing unbiblical about having a primary preacher or even a lead pastor. That's certainly the norm. However, when one person's name becomes a synonym for the church, it opens up some of the dangers that Paul's addressing early in this letter. Here at Orchard, we deliberately use multiple preachers to mitigate this risk. This was a danger in Corinth, and it's a danger today. And perhaps even a bigger danger today is the tribalism that you see with with particular authors or speakers outside the local church. Our day of, of internet, books, podcasts, conferences, there's a real danger of having an unbalanced allegiance to one author or speaker seen this many times, and personally as well. I remember in college, I was very influenced by a particular professor in my college who was also a pastor of the church I attended. And while he influenced me for good in many ways, some of his teaching I have since rejected as unbiblical, and rightfully so. But I defended him for a long time. Everyone's a mixed package. That's the key. As you read or listen to people today... You should, as the saying goes, eat the meat and spit out the bones. It's healthy to have multiple people you're reading or listening to. It helps tremendously with your discernment as you study the scriptures. Never limit yourself to one influencer. It causes unhealthy loyalties and division within the body of Christ. We're going to see much more of this next week. But unity is a big theme of the letter. And this is the church of God at Corinth. There's only one Lord of this church and of all churches, including Orchard, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, in this first point, verse 2, we are sanctified, called to be saints. Now, both of these words have the concept of holiness, okay, being set apart. And despite what you hear on TV, a saint in the Bible is not some famous person that was venerated by church historians. Sainthood is not like knighthood. It means set apart. All true Christians are saints. 
That's the way the word is used throughout the New Testament. Only later in church history did some start adding this special designation, but it's not biblical. All Christians are saints. All Christians are sanctified. This is the past tense, sometimes referred to as positional sanctification, just meaning we have a new position before God. We were hostile, now we're reconciled because our sins have been forgiven in Christ. Interesting, David Peterson wrote a good book a number of years ago, and he highlighted the fact that the most of the time the New Testament uses this word, it is in this past tense positional way. Now, there's a, there's a concept of, of sanctification as a process. That's a biblical concept as well. We're growing in holiness and Christ-likeness. But I remember having this conversation with Jerry Bridges when he visited LBC a number of years ago. And he, he was saying that transformation is the word he likes to use for that process, to distinguish it from sanctification, the past event being separated. Other translations say consecrated. Okay, Gordon Fee says it this way. Believers are set apart for God, just as were the utensils in the temple. Okay, consecrated for a special use. Everyone who's been saved by Jesus Christ is set apart from sin, cleansed for God's purposes. But we are also called to be saints. This is very common in Paul where he exhorts you to become what you've already been claimed to be. You, you, you sort of gravitate to your identity. Okay, this is what happened to you, now act like it. Become what you are, and they have a ways to go, as we'll see. Eugene Peterson's The Message paraphrases it this way. Christians are cleaned up by Jesus and set apart for a God-filled life. I like that. Now, considering the problems that we're going to see in this letter, it is striking that Paul calls them God's holy people. But Paul would remind them and remind us, if they belong to the Lord Jesus, then they belong to the Lord Jesus. And he owns them. He's called them to live accordingly. So just like Paul is obligated to live out his identity as an apostle, to which he was called, the Corinthians are obligated to live out their identity as saints to which they were called. But equally important, just like Paul did not achieve his identity as an apostle, they do not achieve holiness. Their identity as a saint, both identities are received by the grace of God. And as we'll see, the Corinthians were separating the spiritual identity from how they were living separating spirituality from ethical consequences. This is so much like our culture, isn't it? People want to identify as spiritual, but not live biblically. We want to have a, a spirituality, but not be under the lordship of Jesus. Paul says that's not an option for Christians. Jesus is Lord of our church. Second, in your outline, we're also called to be faithful to the Lord of our gifts, spiritual gifts. Verse four, let's read together starting in verse four. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift. Let's stop there. 
Now, in future weeks, we're going to see that these Corinthians were disastrous in how they were using their spiritual gifts. An arrogant flaunting of their gifts, self-centered, pushing their own agenda, just a fundamental lack of love, even in the midst of their worship services. It's remarkable then, isn't it, that Paul gives thanks for these gifts, especially speech and knowledge, where most of the abuse was found. Now, here again, the culture is important to understand. Speech and knowledge were highly praised, highly prized in Corinth. In fact, the Corinthians had competitions in the skills of speech and knowledge and rhetoric. So it's interesting that gifts prized in the church were directly related to the abilities that were prized in the culture, oratory, eloquence, and the like. It's also interesting, we'll see this next week, but some follow Apollos. Well, remember from Acts, he was an eloquent speaker. These gifts of speech and knowledge were meant to evangelize and edify the church, not for their own self-gratification. But we would be reminded here that gifts are given regardless of maturity, aren't they? An improper use of these gifts were, was causing much harm in Corinth. Nevertheless, Paul thanks God for his grace in giving them these gifts. Now, he doesn't thank them. He doesn't praise the Corinthians for their good works like he does in other letters that we have. He's genuine and meaning to build them up, but he's not warm and intimate like he is with the Philippians, for instance. He knows he needs to rebuke them for their misuse and lack of love, but he does not minimize that the spiritual gifts they've received from God. He must speak to their abuses later, but for now he's grateful and lets them know that. Paul's focus of thanks is on the Lord of the gifts. Paul's thankful for God's grace shown others despite their misuse of these blessings. I just want to consider two practical things right here we can learn from Paul. First, are you able to thank God for the gifts and blessings you see in others? Are you grateful they have that gift? Even when maybe they're not using the gift correctly. Even when they're lacking love, perhaps, in the use of their blessing. Paul thanks God for the blessings he sees in others, though they may be misusing the blessing, he praises God. Do we praise God for the blessings others receive? even when their blessing's not being used perfectly. The second thing we can learn from Paul is a leadership skill. Consider any kind of leadership in your life. Okay, church, at work, at home. If you have children, maybe you could consider parenting. Paul doesn't focus on their faults immediately. He's going to address problems that require attention. He's going to speak strongly to them. But here he's still thankful for them. Like a father for his children, he feels responsible for them. He even, in chapter 4, addresses them as dear children. And Blomberg rightfully notes that Paul avoids two leadership pitfalls here. One pitfall is he avoids the heavy-handed authoritarianism, where you just go in and start blasting their faults. I'm the authority, you're doing it wrong. But he also avoids another error. He avoids passive uninvolvement. I know what they're doing is wrong but I just don't want to deal with it. Just easier to let it go. I mean, let's take the good with the bad, right? No. Both of these leadership styles are faulty. Instead, Paul uses tactful authority 
He genuinely thanks God both for the Corinthians and their gifts, but he also redirects their focus. You notice that? Everything comes from God in Christ. These gifts you have come from him. A lot of times what frustrates us about someone is just a perversion of what we like about them. It's their gift unbalanced. The same thing we consider a blessing in them, but misapplied. For instance, we might love someone's spontaneity, but they completely fail to plan ahead. Or, or we're grateful they're such planners. What a blessing. But they need to deal better with changes to plans. Or with a child, perhaps we might thank God for how fun they are. But they need to understand that the classroom, when the teacher is speaking, is not the appropriate place to have that kind of fun. How about before instructing them on their inappropriate behavior, which you need to do, do as Paul does. Thank God in front of them for their sense of humor. What a blessing it is that God made them so fun. They're just misusing a gift that God has given them. Or perhaps a child is super responsible and orderly. That's a blessing. But they're also very intolerant and unmerciful to those who are not. Instead of blasting them for being unloving right away, do as Paul does. Praise God in front of them for the gift of responsibility they've been given, but redirect the focus to the God who gave them that gift. Teach them humility and compassion for those who don't have that gift. Perhaps they, they, would, they could use their gift to bless others who struggle in this. Paul's going to have some stern words of rebuke for these people, but he starts with thanking God for the evidence of grace he sees in them. This is great leadership. Okay, beginning of verse 7, Paul says they're not lacking any gift. Now, he's not speaking of each individual as if no one lacks any gifts. He's speaking corporately as a church. The Lord has provided for the Corinthian church all the gifts they need to function as a body. The context is a local church. This is really important. Okay? Don't miss what Paul's assuming here. It's absolutely essential to be connected and involved in the local church for your spiritual life. Blomberg says this, Nowhere here or in any place in Scripture is it envisioned that Christians are apart from the local church. We need faithful Involvement, using our gifts and experiencing others' gifts in the church is essential to the Christian life. Everyone's lacking gifts individually, but corporately we lack none. As Pryor says, if we are to experience all the gifts of his grace, which are ours in Christ, it has to be together in the fellowship. Now, there's something happening in the American church today because of the changes in our culture over the last 10 or 15 years, and it's diametrically opposed to this. Even though our culture has never been Christian, per se, at least on Sunday mornings, there was somewhat a set-apart time for something special. Either people to go to church or for non-Christians to relax while other people went to church. Not anymore. This is perhaps no more clear than it is in the sports community, and I've experienced this personally. There's no difference anymore between Saturday morning and Sunday morning. And this is dangerous to Christians. Hebrews 10, let us consider how to stir one up together to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, 
as is in the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near, which we're going to consider later. It is disastrous for your Christian life to neglect meeting together in the context of the local church. We need each other or we get sucked in to the enemy's lies and are in danger of falling away. Have you ever seen those National Geographic shows where lions or wolves attack an animal from the herd of wildebeest or whatever it is? What do they do? They get one off by itself, don't they? They get one isolated from the herd. Then the lions will try to get one off alone by himself and they'll pick him off. They attack and kill. Satan and his minions are exactly the same way. They'll try to get you isolated from the church community. When you're not meeting regularly with the local church, when you're not regularly experiencing the gifts of your brothers and sisters and using your own gifts, you're isolated and vulnerable to the enemy's lies. So there's a call of faithfulness here to the Lord of our gifts, both using those gifts appropriately and experiencing the gifts of others corporately in the local church. The fullness of the gifts and the Lord's design for those gifts and the protection from the enemy and the healthy Christian life are only experienced in the regular assembly of believers. Third and finally in your outline, we're called to be faithful to the Lord of our future. Last part of verse 7, please read with me to the end. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. As we think about our call to faithfulness, I want us to see here that our focus is not on ourselves, but on the Lord. Our focus is not on our ability to be faithful, but on his faithfulness. Verse 9, God is faithful. Our focus is not within ourselves to muster up faithfulness, but on the one who is faithful. So the strength for your own faithfulness does not come from looking deep within and, and, and mustering your natural strength. It comes from looking to the one who is faithful. He's the one sustaining and perfecting us. He's the one, he's faithful to give us perseverance to the end. He's the one who called us, verse 9, into the fellowship of Jesus. He started our spiritual life and he will finish it. Paul says the Lord's grace will sustain them to the end, which is a fascinating promise when you think about the severe warnings that come later in the letter. But those in Christ will be guiltless in the day of the Lord. This is that future day of final judgment when everyone will be examined. This doesn't mean sinlessness, but we're blameless because our salvation is in Christ alone who paid fully for our sins. Another translation of this word is unaccusable. I love that. We cannot be accused on that day because the accusations have been neutralized by the cross. And he is faithful to sustain us. And you can take his faithfulness to the bank. The entire Bible is God's resume of his faithfulness. He is faithful. This is very similar, isn't it, to Paul's statement in Philippians 1. God has begun a good work in you, and he will carry it on to completion. He started it. He will finish. Now, of course, he's talking about true believers. 
Okay, there are many who claim to be Christians who are not. And the lack of change in their lives demonstrates that reality. And the lack of fellowship with other believers can demonstrate that as well. First John. Having a profession of faith does not save anyone. It's a possession of faith that is begun by God and results in genuine conversion. That faith is genuine and accompanied, accompanied by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and a changed life, a desire for obedience to his word, a desire to be faithful, a desire for fellowship and love for other believers. So for, for those who are truly in Christ, we can be confident that he will sustain us in this life and present us unaccusable on that future day. There is therefore now what? No condemnation, praise God, for those who are in Christ Jesus. And true believers wait for that day. Look at, notice verse seven, key. We are waiting for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. We long for the coming of Jesus to consummate his kingdom. You see this throughout Paul's letters and really all the New Testament writers. They're obsessed with a focus on the end. The second coming of Christ is a theme that pervades the New Testament. It's clearly on the forefront of their minds, isn't it? Like Paul here. And that changes your perspective, doesn't it? If the coming of Jesus is at the forefront of your mind, you're not likely going to bicker with another brother or sister about something petty. When you're praying daily for the kingdom to come, as Jesus taught us to pray, you're not likely going to be as distracted by the lies in our culture. As you're actively waiting and fixated on the imminent revealing, may it be today, Lord, imminent revealing of Jesus Christ in his glory to come and reign on this earth, longing for that, you're probably not going to let too many things get in the way of coming to fellowship with God's people and worshiping corporately in song and scripture. So let's just recap some of God's faithfulness that we see just in the verses we looked at today and what our response is. First, God was faithful to provide the local church community apostolic leadership and instruction about what that should look like. We have it in his word. We're not left wondering what the Christian life and community should be. So what's our response? Let's commit to corporate fellowship. Let's not do Christianity our own way. Let's do it the way he told us. He's the Lord of the church. Second, God is faithful to provide gifts to the local church. He's equipped us individually and as a church. So what's our response? Let's use those gifts to serve one another. Let's appreciate the gifts in others, thanking God for them, even if the exercise of those gifts is not being done perfectly. Third, he is faithful to save and sanctify and sustain us to the end, unaccusable. What's our response? Let's remember that his grace is sufficient for us. Let's focus on him, not ourselves. Let's walk in step with the Spirit to become the people we're called to be, to embrace our identity as holy. And if you're not a believer, your response is to embrace him as your Savior. You will be accused in that last day of judgment. Unless you've been forgiven through his death and resurrection, unless you've fully given your life to Jesus 
and follow him as Lord. He is faithful to forgive and to cleanse you if you come to him in humility and repentance. Would you come today? And finally, he is faithful to come back again and reign. What's our response? Let's live with that end in mind. Let's live focused on the coming of Jesus. As Paul says, waiting for him to be revealed. There's a deliberate waiting and anticipation here for Paul. Do you see that? As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, New Testament author, is constantly referencing that great hope in the coming kingdom which will be consummated when Jesus returns. They draw great strength from keeping that vision in front of them. Let's do the same. I want to give you an illustration. I pray will help us understand this better. How keeping the vision of Jesus' return is critical to our own faithfulness. It's imperative, especially when things are hard. When we're tempted to give in, give up, take the easy way. In 1952, a woman named Florence Chadwick attempted the 26-mile swim between the California coastline and Catalina Island. During her swim, a team and a boat traveled alongside her, one just to watch out for sharks, but also in the event of cramps or injury, they would be there to help. Well, roughly 15 hours into her swim, a thick fog began to set in, clouding Chadwick's vision and confidence. She relayed to her team. She didn't think she could complete the swim. She continued on for another hour before finally deciding to call it quits. And as she got into the boat, she discovered shortly if she just continued on for one more mile, she would have reached the shoreline. She said, if I could have seen that shoreline through the fog, I could have kept going. Well, two months later, she attempted the swim once more. And once again, a thick fog set in. But this time, she had a mental image of that shoreline in her mind as she pushed herself along to the finish, having a vision of the end. That picture of the shoreline in her mind is what kept her going toward her goal. It's the same with us, brothers and sisters. The fog of despair is all around us in the Christian life, isn't it? The fog of sin and self-centeredness impairs our sight. The fog of disappointment in other people clouds our perception. The fog of cultural lies bombarding us disorients us. But if we keep that vision of the coming of Jesus Christ, our Lord and King, it presses us on to faithfulness. The vision of the faithful one presses us on in perseverance to finish the race as we eagerly await the revealing of our Lord Jesus. And one day we will reach the shore, brothers and sisters. Until then, actively waiting, praying and anticipating, seeing him face to face is the vision we need to be faithful as we press on in the new year. I close with these words from Eric Sauer in his book, The Arena of Faith. If you wish to be disappointed, look upon others. If you wish to be downhearted, look at yourself. But if you wish to be encouraged to experience victory, look upon Jesus Christ. Please stand with me as we close. 
Our Father, great is thy faithfulness. We're so thankful for the Lord Jesus, the faithful one who did it all for us. And we just pray, Lord, with a vision of him, we could continue by the strength of your spirit and the vision of his coming to press on, to use our gifts, to fellowship with one another, to evangelize the lost, and to wait, wait, wait eagerly, anticipating seeing him face to face. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.